news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Before we sashay into today's awesome bonus episode, I'd like to give a shout out to something that's close to my heart. Blackbird Books is a kick-ass indie publisher in South Africa, headed up by the fabulous publisher Tabiso Mkhlape. Its launch was a groundbreaking move for the South African literary landscape, and since its inception, they've been pioneering and establishing a home for new African narratives, especially for black authors. Now, the only problem is that those books were only being published in southern Africa, which meant their readership was greatly limited. Until now, that is, when the amazing Canadian indie publisher, Rising Action Publishing Collective, headed up by Alexandria Brown and Tina S. Bayer, have partnered with them to publish these books in a North American market. Their first book that they brought out together releases today. It's called No Be From Here. The spelling of that is H-I-A, written by Natasha Omakodian Kalulubanda, who is a UK-born Zambian of Nigerian and Jamaican heritage who lives in Lusaka. I've posted more information about it on my website and on my Instagram page where you can find links to purchase it. Go look at that stunning cover that they've put together. Congratulations to all concerned for their commitment to publishing diverse voices. Today's guest is an award-winning author of romance and urban fantasy. She lives south of Atlanta with her husband, son, two attack poodles, and a bulldozer of a cane corso. When not writing, she likes to collect purple things and jewelry and spends way too much time watching K-dramas and anime. It's my pleasure to welcome Cerecia Glass. Cerecia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Our listeners can't see this, but I can see your background, and there are indeed quite a bit of purple things in the background, <laughs> which I absolutely love. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's a habit now. And your hair's purple too. Yes. <laughs> wow. I, I'm absolutely loving this whole vibe, loving it. So just for our listeners, a bit of background on the book that we're going to be discussing today. It's called The Love Con, and here's just a bit of an overview in The Love Con, black female cosplayer Kenya and her best friend Cameron become a fake couple to win a cosplay reality show competition. 
but it may turn out that the feelings hiding under their relationship are real. Now, Sericia, what fascinates me is that you write in romance and urban fantasy. And here's the frustrating part as writers, that we keep getting told we need to write in one genre or the other to make us easier to market. Could you give us a bit of an understanding of your evolution, which one you started in, and how you kind of evolved into the next without it being a huge issue for your agent and for your publisher? Well, I actually did start in contemporary romance because I started reading that. Well, okay, first I started reading comic books way back when I was a little one. So comics and anime and superheroes and all of that, that was what I cut my teeth on. But when I started writing, I actually did start in a fantasy world. But then when I started working part-time at a bookstore to support my book buying habit, there were a bunch of romance writers there doing a signing and they were local and they had a chapter and they invited me and I was reading them already. But then I just started to get a deep dive into the group and realized that there were so many subgenres in romance that you could pretty much write about any kind of thing, but have that romantic element and there would be a market for it. So I did that straight contemporary romances for about 10 years. I did a couple of paranormal romances, but this urban fantasy idea had been in the back of my mind for a while because I also love Egyptian mythology, watched all kinds of documentaries on ancient Egypt and the pyramid era and all of that stuff. So that really did fascinate me. And so I just read some urban fantasy authors, you know, Patricia Briggs and some others, Ilona Andrews, things like that. So I really loved those and I wanted to try my hand at it. So in 2009 is when I came up with the idea for my Shadow Chasers series. The first book of that came out in 2010. So at the moment, it's just three books, but I am planning to do some more in that world and put them out independently because it's a totally different kind of vibe and style to romance. So it helps the other side of my brain kind of get some of the more gritty, gruesome kind of things out that you can't necessarily do in a classic romance style. Even though there are some gritty romance books out there, or dark romance, I think they call them. You know, I'm a Gemini, so I'm of two minds about everything. So I can short attention span like the best of them. So being able to write in a totally different genre actually helps me because I can get that fascination out or get that idea out. And then it's pretty easy to switch back over. Now that I've got this idea out, I can focus on this thing. But now I'm at the point where most of the urban fantasy or paranormal stuff is probably going to be independent releases, indie releases, because the new stories that I'm writing, the rom-coms, which is totally new for me because usually I was writing the angst-filled books. It's actually been a lot of fun writing these rom-coms with these geek girls because I get to put a little bit of myself and the things that I'm interested in into the stories even more. So it's been a lot of fun, but you have to be split-brained about them sometimes. And did you have different agents to publish these different stories? Did you move back and forth between agents or did you have one agent who was kind of happy to represent you across all genres? I have a wonderful agent, Jenny Bent of the Bent Agency, and we join forces with the Urban Fantasy series and we do career talk and things like that. And once the urban fantasy genre kind of leveled off as far as people being able to be successful in it, we made a business decision to focus on the contemporary romances because that was still a burgeoning, growing genre. So, and I can write them, I've been writing them. So we have these career talks about where would we like to go? What would I like to do? So, and then I just kind of come up with these different ideas and bounce them off of her. And she's like, maybe we should rethink that one. Let's put that one on the back burner. But that idea, I think that I can really sell that. And luckily it's one that I'm really quick with. And so when I came up with this idea of writing a female cosplayer and then throwing in a reality show and it's a best friends to lovers kind of thing and fake dating. And she she's like, it's got all the tropes and it's funny. So let's do that. And luckily I was still with Berkeley. So I had to do an option book with them. So she gave it to Berkeley and like within 30 days, you're like, love it. Let's buy it. Let's do it. So that's how this new life, new chapter, I guess. <laughs> where my career started. It's been a fun ride with this book. I really just love the whole process of it. Even the stressful times when I didn't think I could get a word down because, you know, yeah. 2020, 2021, 
all of that stuff. <laughs> it kind of made it hard to write, but actually turning off the TV was a, <laughs> was a great benefit, turning off the news especially. And I'm sorry, that's my dogs, my attack dogs in the background there. Because, the, attack, you know. the attack poodles, we heard about them in the bio and we're very dog friendly on this podcast in general. My golden retriever muggle has a lot of opinions as well. So don't worry about that. I love that you spoke about you and your agent having this conversation about your career and kind of pivoting because, you know, so many authors manage to get out one or two books and that's kind of it. And then you look at these authors who have been writing for 20, 30 years and you go, wow, how did they make a whole lifetime career of it? And then if you look at the kind of books that they've been writing, they have had to pivot along the way because, as you say, there was a time where vampires were all the rage and every book was about vampires. But if you're going to be the author who just writes about vampires, you're going to eventually run out of that market because that kind of plays itself out. And I mean, apparently vampires are making a comeback now, but then you would have had 10 years in which no one was buying your books. So I think it's so important for us as authors to sit with our agents and go, okay, what next? What am I going to pivot to? How am I going to evolve? Right. And a good agent is onto the trends, knows what's hot in the market, knows where the market is going a year from now, two years or three years or however long it takes you to write a book and get it to a publisher. They are on top of that and they know who's buying what. And that's the great thing about my agent. I love her to death because she will give it to me straight about whether she thinks that she can sell a book because if she sells a book, we both make money. But more than that, she actually believes in my writing. Whatever I write, I really love and need that kind of support. So I'm just totally grateful for her and her expertise. And you're right. If something is taking a downturn, then you try to get out of it sooner rather than later, because by the time you finish a book and get it to the market, it's like a year, 18 months later, something like that in traditional publishing. So by the time your book is ready, the market could have cooled on that type of story. So I definitely want to write something that people are going to buy, get from the library, enjoy it. So contemporary is, I hate to say it's safe, but there's always going to be contemporary stories. It's just your take on them. So and vampires are making a comeback, but you can't do the same kind of story that was hot 10 years ago. You know, you got to do a different take on them. And I still love paranormal romance. I'd like to go back to it. The whole Egyptian mythology thing. I did the Sons of Anubis trilogy, which had jackal shapeshifters. So that was my take on shapeshifters and paranormal romance. So these immortal jackal shapeshifters that had to prevent the dead from trying to come back into the world instead of going on to the field of reeds. Taking all of that Egyptian mythology thing, putting it into those stories that were actually steamy <laughs> paranormal romances. So there are things that I'd like to return to, but I think that that's why indie publishing is such a good thing because you don't have to make as much as the publisher wants you to to keep you on their publishing roster. You can find a niche in indie publishing. You can find your group who are your avid readers who will buy that stuff. I mean, you have to work hard to keep your audience and grow your audience, put out good stuff, but trying to take that audience, which may be a smaller group versus trying to get everyone in America to know that you've got a book out through, you know, traditional publishing because they have profit and loss and all of those kind of things. And you could get dropped in an instant if you're not making the numbers that they want you to make. So that's why I really like the indie aspect of writing, because if you want to do this full time, I think you really do have to diversify, whether you do that under one name or under multiple names, just so that people can keep it's straight. I think that that's important to do, as especially as an indie author. Even a hybrid author, you still have to do that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So before we've got a whole bunch of questions from our listeners that they want to pick your brain as a romance author. Before we go into that, what I would just like to do is for our listeners, you know, we're constantly saying show, don't tell, show, don't tell. And here is the perfect example of showing instead of telling. And it's on the very first page that I want to read to you. Here is the perfect example of that. And I really want to read it to you because I know we always give you all this theory, but how to apply it. And here we go. So she writes, Kenya stared at Mark as the host recapped the competition so far. Being in the final three had her mentally bouncing with excitement. She'd read enough online comments after last week's show, the first to broadcast live, to know that a lot of people thought she was there simply to mark a diversity checkbox. Please, she'd worked her ass off to stay in the competition. Now that is an ingenious way of telling the reader on page one without saying, 
Kenya is a black woman. That is the perfect way of telling the reader that this character is a diverse character without coming out and going, well, she had brown skin or dark skin or whatever the case may be. So these are the kinds of things that we mean when we're saying show, don't tell, show, don't tell. And as I saw that, Sarisi, I was like, genius, have to share that with all of our listeners. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I definitely, being part of a romance writing chapter, I learned a lot about the show, don't tell, because that is an integral part of making a story good. Because I was used to the info dumps, reading high fantasy and stuff like that, because they have to set the world and the story. So there is a lot that you get in that first chapter, usually just so that you can understand the world that you're interacting in. So it would be easy to kind of set up your story that way so that the reader knows what's going on and where you are. But I think that there is a lot to be said about putting a reader immediately into the story by just kind of recounting the events as they're happening, but also showing how the characters are reacting in those events. So I do think that showing instead of telling is just a really good way to connect the readers to the characters and let you know immediately what their conflicts are and what's going on with them. So you can set up them rooting for that character and cheering for them throughout the story. Absolutely. And in this instance, you accomplished two things. So you didn't just let the reader know that this is a Black character. You explained how the audience's take on that affects this character, which is amazing. She's like, please, I've worked my ass off to be here. And so it's achieving so much more than just a simple description, which is what we're always going for. So I love that. Right. So I have a whole bunch of questions from our listeners that I'm going to put at you. Here we go. First one. What is your opinion on the third act breakup? I have to admit, I'm kind of tired of them. I mean, of course, romance follows a formula. And usually that breakup is, you know, it's coming. You know, it has to happen because you want them to get back together and realize their feelings for each other. But I no longer think that that third act breakup is necessary. Maybe it's because I did a whole bunch of Hallmark movies in a row in a marathon. You (laughs) knew exactly when it was going to happen. And it's usually some stupid misunderstanding that could be settled if they would just talk to each other and explain, this is why I'm upset. Oh, well, that's not exactly what happened. Here's what actually happened. Oh, you're right. I took that the wrong way. Let's kiss now. So, you know, <laughs> you know when it can be solved like that, it pulls me from the story. If there is a breakup, I want there to be a good reason for the breakup instead of a misunderstanding. I want it to be somebody came back from the dead or your life will be destroyed if you continue on with this relationship, which happens a lot in the K-dramas too. I'll destroy you for trying to marry my son, you from the other (laughs) side of the tracks person. Um, So if you do it, make it be something that can't be solved with a simple phone call or conversation. Make it be so that the character who's doing the breaking up feels like they have no choice instead of it just being an argument. Because in real life, in our relationships, we argue all the time. That doesn't mean that we call it quits, especially if you're married and your husband is leaving his socks all over the place. Not saying that my husband does that, but you have arguments all the time over silly things and you get over it and go on like that argument didn't happen. So to say that you're bringing up because of an argument that you two have, I need something more than that for the breakup to be believable. That's why in this one, even though they were headed towards a breakup, they actually talked it out and hashed it out and just like, we're going to be grown-ups about this. Talk to me, talk to me, <laughs> you know? And they talked and the person doing the breaking up was realizing that, okay, I'm overreacting maybe. Okay, if you're going to be here and you're going to be here for the long haul, I will accept that. Let's be together and let's not give a darn about <laughs> what anybody else will think about it. So Wonderful. that's going to happen. Yeah, we've had Uzma Jaluddin on the podcast as well. Hannah Khan carries on. And she also said she's kind of sick of the third act breakup as well and said she wanted to see authors getting a bit more creative with it. So that was awesome. And just so you know, Sarisia, the podcast is called The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. We curse a lot on this podcast. So you don't have to be donning and fudging on the podcast, just so you know. Okay, so we're we're, we're totally into our, our curse words here. Next question. Should writers name the tropes in their query letters to agents or let the text imply what the tropes are? What's your take on that? Because I know you've had an agent for ages, so you haven't had to write a query letter. But maybe when your agent puts one together for a publisher, what do you think? Yeah, I think part of her pitch 
to the editor is kind of talking about what the hooks are in the story. Because again, her job is to sell it so that we both make money. So even though I do try to do a synopsis when I give her a proposal, whether it's the five page or detailed one, usually I try not to do the detailed ones anymore. Mine usually end up being about five to seven pages, just because I want to make sure all of the main plot points and the hooks are in the synopsis. In her cover phone call, basically, sometimes is how it is. She will tell them what the story is about, but she'll also tell them what the hooks are. Because again, it's not just the editor has to make the decision. There's a senior editor, there's a marketing team, you know, they have to figure out if the book is marketable. So having those hooks be explicitly stated will help sell your book. So you can put them in the query letter if you don't have an agent, if you're pitching solo, just kind of say that Blah Blah Title has all of the things that a reader loves. Say that Blah Blah Title is a friends to lovers, fake dating, only one bed romance where this happens. So you can put it right up front so they know what to expect from the book and whether that's something that's for them or not for them or something that is kind of what they're looking for or not. What would you have said with the love con? What was the hook there? Because remember, for our listeners, you know, tropes and hooks are different things because most romances have got various tropes. That doesn't make it a hook. So for you in the love con, what do you think made the hook that got the publisher interested? I think what Kenya has to go through in the course of the story with the microaggressions and how she overcomes those and how they are really best friends and have been best friends since their teen years. So the hook was Kenya's heroine's journey and the things that she had to do to do what she wanted to do and the obstacles she had to overcome. So the tropes are, again, the friends to lovers, the fake dating, feelings becoming real and all of that. But I think that the main hook that they really resonated with was Kenya's growth as a character. So I wanted to make sure that all of the turns for her character were clearly stated in the synopsis so that they would understand that it was about her growth as a character and how these people supported her or didn't support her in her growth to achieving what she wanted. And would you have said that the fact that she's a plus-sized heroine and that this was an interracial romance, do you consider those Hooks or no? What do you consider those? Just differentiating factors? Yeah, I think especially her being a plus size woman, a black woman in a fandom that doesn't necessarily celebrate those body shapes and people of color traditionally. I think that that was also they wanted to kind of see that journey and just seeing a plus size person because I am one too. I'm fat. I readily admit that. I've got curves for days. I'm okay with that. And so I just wanted to also write a story where that wasn't an angsty thing for her, where she is comfortable in her skin. And if you got a problem about it, well, that tough titties on you versus her having to react to you having a problem with her being the size. Because she's like, no, I'm good. I didn't ask for your opinion. I don't want your opinion. You can take your opinion and kick rocks. So I definitely wanted to make her that type of character. So I think that that also did help making her more rounded, realistic figure too. And what I love about that as well is I love the progression we're seeing away because I remember when I was reading romance, it was like Bridget Jones's diary when I was younger. And so much of that was Bridget struggling with her weight and not liking her weight and feeling fat and whatever the case may be is. And I remember recently looking back at the weight Bridget was supposed to be when she was at her supposed fattest. And I was like, bitch, please, I could lose (laughs) 20 kilos and I wouldn't be that damn weight. And yet, you know, this was this thing that you were so fat. It's frustrating. And so it's wonderful. We want to see women who are getting on with their lives and not being held back by these kinds of constraints. So these are the things we're wanting to see in literature and loving to see it in romance as well. Okay, so question three. Is there anything besides humor that makes a romance a rom-com? And also, how much humor do you think a rom-com requires? That's a very good question. And I'm going to be a little stumped on this one because I don't know if there is a percentage or a formula for how much humor you need in a rom-com. Because in the love con, there are some very emotional moments, heavy emotional moments, as well as those fun parts and the funny and comedic parts. So I think you can do it in conversation and in action and just kind of sprinkle it throughout. So it doesn't have to be a laugh out loud roller coaster of a ride all the way through, I think. Because, you know, on those roller coasters, you have the highs and you have the lows so that you can get back up to the high again. So I think that it's important to 
let the readers have a breather. But when you're doing the funny parts, make sure that they actually are funny and resonate with a bunch of different people. Make it so that the humor definitely shines in those parts. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, what else besides humor makes a romance a rom-com? But I think all the things that create humor are what make it a rom-com because that's like misunderstandings, right? What are the kind of things that lead to things being funny? I mean, if I think of Dal A for aunties, called it Weekend at Bernie's, but with a rom-com, <laughs> because the amount of misunderstandings with this dead body. So I think it's all the kind of things that you use to create humor that then naturally become part of a rom-com to create that humor. Right. So the beginning of this, when she realizes it's a couples cosplay and she's got to get a significant other to help her with the costumes, she's single. So she just kind of blurts out her best friend's name on live TV and then kind of insinuates that, yeah, they are partners in all kinds of ways. So everybody's assuming that he's her boyfriend and she has to convince him of that. Luckily, she doesn't have to convince too hard because he's rising to the occasion like a best friend should and as a potential love interest would. So I think that that does kind of set this series of events where now that she said this, now that he's agreed to it, then they have to sell it to everybody. So that sets up all of these different things that they have to do to try to convince their friends, their family, the production crew that they actually are a couple. And even though they're best friends, there's some lines that they have not crossed. So it makes for some, I think, very funny moments as they're trying to navigate this whole fake dating thing yeah. by trying to be as real as possible about the fake dating. Yeah. So it's like it's lying. It's deceit. It's snowball effects. Mm-hmm. It's misunderstandings. It's all of these things that revolve around the humor that I think we're finding in rom-coms. Okay. Next question is how do you get over the mental block that your family and friends are going to read your romance? And I think by this, what the person means is like sex scenes or the titillating things. Like, has that ever been a problem? That's not something I worry about. For the most part, a lot of your friends, family, neighbors are probably not going to read your book, especially one, if they're not readers. Two, it's a genre they don't usually read. And three, just because they know you so well. Authors are other people, not people in your family, because you're the one that does the laundry and picks up after the kids and takes the dogs out and scoop up poop and stuff like that. So the whole author person is this totally abstract person that they never see. So one, I wouldn't worry about that. Two, if they read it, thank them for reading it and, you know, buying a copy of your book. And if they want to tell their friends about it, that's great. I mean, yeah, if you have supportive family members that are going to read everything you write, then that is an awesome thing. But I don't think that you necessarily have to expect that unless you are asking them to kind of be a proofreader or critiquer. But again, you want to have a critique group for that. You want to have author friends that can help you in that respect to make sure that you've got the best book out there. Once it's published, it's out of your hands. So if they read it, great. If they don't, also great. But if they read it and then say you shouldn't be writing those kind of books, we'll tell them, thank you for your opinion, but I'm going to keep on keeping on because, you know, this is what I want to do. And again, you can kick rocks with your opinion because opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. So in this business, you have to have thick skin because once your book is out there, again, like I said, you have no control over it. People are going to think what they want to think. So you can read those critiques. You can take those criticisms or reviews to heart and turn them into something so that you can make a better book the next time. Or you can stew on them and say, well, these hurt me so much. I'm never going to write again. Don't do it. Don't read the negative reviews. Don't read the reviews except for maybe a glass of wine. Make sure you got your favorite music on or something harder, you know, tequila works too. So the vodka. <laughs> vodka and Kool-Aid is a great mixture. So yeah, so just get your drink of choice and just kind of see how many stars you have on Amazon. And if it's four or if it's five, if it's three and a half, you're good. If it's less than that, just don't scroll further. That's what yeah. I do. And I feel like as well, if you're writing steamy sex scenes or whatever, your friends and family, you just say, listen, this is a steamy romance. I'm warning you ahead of time. And that's it. We've got tons of authors who write psychological suspense and murder mystery that doesn't make them killers. And you hope that your friends and family also understand that there's a difference between the author and their work. So, yeah. Absolutely. Right. So another question, how do you keep the ideas fresh within the construct of the designated beats and well-known tropes? 
So if romance is all these different kind of tropes and we're expecting a certain thing, how do you still make it interesting? I think that writers have to put their own spin on things. You bring a little bit of yourself, your thoughts and the things that you like or don't like into your writing, whether you do it deliberately or just do it in an abstract way, because who you are informs the way you view the world and also informs the way that you write. But then you can make deliberate choices in your story to take it into a different direction. So I think that you have to be very mindful of what you're writing and how you're writing it, because you don't want to take the last book you read and kind of insert those kind of things. So that's why I usually read in a different genre from what I'm currently writing, because I just don't want to have that bleed through of the last few things that I read to be in my story, just because I'm just kind of paranoid that way. I don't want people to say, oh, hey, I saw that in blah, blah, blah's book. It's amazing how you kind of echoed that. I just don't want there to be any kind of misunderstanding or thinking, copying or imitating or plagiarizing anybody else. So I think that even though I don't do this because I'm a pantser, I have that synopsis and I try to break down those acts in the synopsis, but I also try to put in different ways of how those acts flow and try to think about what the normal reaction would be to this. But knowing your character and understanding your character, even if you're doing like a whole character makeup of what they like to eat, what their favorite colors are, what sign they were born under, all of those things. And you take that bare bones character profile and then you kind of fill that in and you refer back to that so that you know how your character should act or react in different situations. And you make it true to the way that that character write-up that you did is and stick to the way that character. Because depending on how you wrote them, they're either going to cry and sulk in a corner or they're going to wipe their tears and kick some ass. So you have to kind of be deliberate and be mindful of how you set up the character in order to make them interact with the world that you have also set up for them. Yeah. And I think what's important there as well is like the character and the world, because if there's a formula to romance, the readers are kind of, they find comfort in that formula. They want to see that formula happening. But where one story differentiates itself from another is who those characters are and the setup. So for you, it's Kenya. It's this plus size woman who's doing cosplay, etc. And so that's something different to any other kind of romance. So it's coming up with the characters and the scenarios that are going to vastly be different from something else people have read. The next question is very similar. Romance books always have a happy ever after or a happy for now with the reader knowing how it will end. What are tips for keeping them turning pages and asking questions throughout? Well, I think first you've got to identify the stakes. So what is at stake for those characters? And each main character should have their own stakes that they're trying to achieve and things that they are risking to achieve those things. Again, you have to be mindful of what those are so that you can make sure that in each act, the stakes are getting higher for them, for their goals and how they are going to accomplish those. And you also have to have the antagonist or the conflict that are butting against those stakes and against those goals. The whole goal motivation and conflict arc has to be there in each of those acts so that you're building on each of those things till it reaches that dark night of the soul in act three, where things seem like they're going to be lost and everything's going to go to shit. You have to make it so that you're feeling the pain that these characters are feeling. You're feeling the hurt that they are experiencing. And that is a really emotional gut punch so that the readers are rooting for them so that when that third act happens and when you start to turn it around, they are very happy. So that breakdown and that dark night of the soul part has to be really believable and really poignant, I think, so that when you start to redeem everything and they start to get to their happily ever after that, of course you're expecting, but how are they getting there? The question is the how and how you answer the how of that, I think is what will make the readers continue to turn the page. As an example, so with the love con, so for Kenya, what are the stakes for her up front? Up front is that she is doing this against her parents' wishes. She has a computer engineering degree because the whole family is tech-minded and she's the lone black sheep creative person and wants to pursue the creative side of her by turning her cosplay habit into a career. So she wants to make money off of that. 
And her parents like, we paid for that computer engineering degree. You need to get a job that uses your degree. And so for her, she's got to win this competition because if she doesn't, the deal that she made with her parents was if she doesn't win this, she's got to quit. She's got to give up her dream and go get a job in her degree field, which is the last thing that she absolutely wants to do. So for her, the stakes is she's got to win no matter what. And by looping in her best friend, Cameron, now she's got to win because if she wins, she can give him the prize money because he has supported her through all of this because he runs this small shop and he's running it lean because, you know, small businesses are definitely run lean. So if she can help him the way that he has helped her through all of this, that's something that she also wants. So for her, winning means everything can happen and everything that she wants and needs can actually happen. So she can't lose. So basically her whole thing going through this is she cannot lose this competition. She's got to do whatever it takes, including fake date her best friend in order to win this competition. And for our listeners, we have two agents who are co-hosts on the podcast and they read query letters and opening pages to give our readers critique so that they can make their query letters better when they go out on submission. And Cece is always saying that the reader needs to have very specific questions to keep them turning the pages. And from what Cerecia said, it's not just will Kenya win the competition. It's like, how is she going to convince him to pretend to be her boyfriend? And how is that going to go? And how are they going to manage to maintain this charade, etc., etc.? So the questions keep changing and evolving as the story goes along. It's not just that one overarching question, will they get together? Will she win the competition? It's like, how is she going to go about this? How is she going to get him to go along with it? How are they going to keep duping people into believing this, etc., etc.? So again, it's a very specific scenario that helps lead to very specific questions. And as Cerecia says, it's very much tied to those stakes. What's at stake for all of them? Right, last question, before I'm able to let you go, is any tips for a good balance between love and tension when writing romantic suspense? Now, I know that's not something you've written in, Cerecia, but in terms of our listeners who are writing romantic suspense, any advice you have for them there? Well, I know that the suspense is the paramount part and the love story can kind of be like the secondary arc in it. So I think that, again, you kind of have to treat it like a wave or like a roller coaster ride. So you have these high points where the action and the suspense is really high, but you've got to also give those characters and your readers a breather. So in those parts, that's when the romance can have time to kind of develop. And I know that there's a mystery or you're trying to catch the killer and the killer is after them or some groups or something are chasing them or something is going on that kind of makes the romance part a back burner. But that's where that show versus tell comes in again, because you can show that these characters are growing closer and closer together, not only because they're in dire straits, but because of how they handle those dire straits and how they are trying to overcome and win the day and bring the bad guys to justice. But showing their character and how their characters are acting and reacting and developing as they go along, you can show those building blocks in the romance part of that story. So whether it's the action takes place over three days or it's three months or three weeks, however long it is, you can still show how those characters are reacting to each other, whether they are impressed at their abilities, touched by their capabilities and how they're handling the situation, admiration, all of those things can breed love. So I think that showing those things, even during the action or after the action, I mean, if the heroine is shooting guns, the hero can be impressed at her shooting technique. It's like, wow, you only needed one bullet to drop that dude. That's cool. So little things like that can just kind of show the progression of the relationship. Yes, wonderful. I love that. And I love seeing it as a roller coaster ride. So there's that build up to tension and then things happen very, very quickly. And like you say, the reader then needs time to catch their breath. The characters need time to catch their breath. And that's a great way in which to show the romance side of things, definitely. Cerecia, it's been such a joy chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge and expertise with us. For our listeners, the book is The Love Con. We do have an affiliate page with bookshop.org where you can go on and find all of the books that we discuss. And if you make a purchase through that, it helps support the podcast and it helps support an indie bookstore of your choice and it helps support the author as well. So we do encourage that. Cerecia, we hope to have you back with your next book and to maybe pick your brain a bit more about the transition from traditional publishing to indie publishing. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
my youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and Francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. This is just a reminder that we've got the virtual retreat coming up the last weekend of January and you definitely don't want to be missing out on that. For more details, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look at the courses, services and retreats tab and you'll find the full lineup there and the link on where to sign up for that. And also a reminder that our Kofi supporters get access to exclusive additional content on our Kofi page every Thursday. So if you would like access to that, Again, look at the website, biancamaray.com, and you'll find a link there on how to become a Kofi supporter. If you've been a regular listener of the podcast, you will have heard me mention Scrivener often. Because up until when I discovered this amazing software, I was using huge binders. I was printing everything out. My notes were all over the place. My research was in a million notebooks and it was just a bloody awful mess. And then I discovered Scrivener and it completely changed the way I write. And this was probably in about 2016. So I've been using it for quite a while, which is why I'm so excited today to have Julia from Scrivener here as our guest to discuss this amazing software with us. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting us. That's fantastic. Great to be yes, here. Yes, absolutely. So 
Can you talk us through the software? Like what led to its creation? How you view it helping writers with their work in progress? Why you think writers need this? Because as a writer, I can tell you, I think most writers need it. But let's hear the sales pitch. Great. Okay. So the idea behind Scrivener, as you've just pretty much summarized yourself, actually, is it's just to make the writing process easier. When you're thinking about, oh, I've, you know, I've had an idea, I need to slot it in back further in my document. But where in my document was that? I'm scrolling through, I can't find it. When you start doing that, you're not concentrating on your writing. It's breaking your kind of flow. And yeah, you're getting nowhere. So the whole idea behind Scrivener was actually, it was created for that reason. Keith, the Scrivener's founder, was writing uh, his own novel. He was also working on a PhD and doing loads of research to do with that. Looked at the software that was out there and thought, well, this really doesn't do what I want to do. Um, Again, it was the idea of organising all his research, trying to create a long document from that and thinking, ugh, how does this happen? So that's how Scrivener was created. The central metaphor behind Scrivener is actually quite simple. It's a virtual ring binder. Within that, you've got lots of documents that you create. And on top of each of those documents, you've got a kind of virtual index card clipped to it. You move the index cards and you move the order of the actual pieces within the novel or the whatever else you're writing. With the index cards, it makes it so much more easy to actually visualize what you've got in front of you. You can write little synopsis on each of it. So you remember what's in each chapter and then you know where you are. So it's really easy to kind of get that piece that you've suddenly thought of and flick back to where you were before, drop it in and then go back to what you're doing really without kind of breaking what's going on in your mind. Something that I discovered early on that I really loved is that nothing disappears. So if you are working on a chapter and you decide, okay, this isn't something that you want to keep in and you send it to the trash, it kind of stays there so that when three days later, as inevitably happens, you decide, oh shit, that was actually my best damn work. It needs to come back into the document. You just go and drag it and bring it back up again. So the problem with Word is that as you delete stuff, that's it, it's deleted. So unless you keep a separate Word document in which you are copying and pasting every single thing you delete, your drafts update each time you save the exact same file, which means you're losing work that may at that moment not be something you want, but down the line you might decide to change your mind. Yeah, that's really important, actually. It's just the idea that you have a right to change your mind. Another thing, actually, that's connected to that is the ability to take snapshots, which we put in there for the same reason. It's like you do something, you think, do I like it? I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to make some edits. And then you leave it, you go back in a week and you think do you know what, actually, I really liked what I had before. And now I really wish I could go back to that. And yeah, using rollback, you can do that. Or you can take it out the trash and pop it back in where it was before. It's just, you're a writer, you change your mind. So yeah, that's it. We sort of thought it's kind of important to support that. Yeah. And when you write each sort of chapter, you can save it as different drafts, can't you? So if you make changes, you can save something as draft one and then save it as draft two. What is that functionality? Because I kind of have gotten stuck in using the things that I know as opposed to broadening my knowledge and using it really extensively because its capabilities are amazing. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you can save sort of different drafts and then go back and do that. But the thing with the capabilities, actually, I think sort of going back to the beginning in a way, a lot of people go, oh, I looked at it, it's quite complicated. But actually, the thing with Scrivener is, again, it's built with the idea that everybody is different and this piece of software can do so much and some bits you're going to use, some bits you're going to ignore. I think one of the reasons for that was because actually when the software was developed, Keith, who's actually my husband, he was doing his PhD, he was writing his novel. I was working as a journalist and then actually I've used it for academic work since as well. So all of these things, and actually a lot of the people that work for us as well are writing novels and doing other things. So everyone has a bit of feedback into it. And there are a lot of features which have kind of come up. So it's whatever you want to do, probably you can find something in Scrivener to do that for you. But back to the beginning, it's actually just really simple, this idea that you don't have to have a big linear document anymore. You can split it into little bits. If there's a bit that's being really tricky for you, you can kind of put a little tag on that saying, you know, this needs loads of work everything else you can do, then you can go back to that bit and tackle it when you're kind of mentally prepared. Yeah, it allows for non-linear writing, which I really love as well. And for our podcast listeners, the author David Joy tweeted something the other day about 
how his latest novel was so difficult for him because he wasn't able to write it in a linear way and that he realized that it was this enormous puzzle piece and he was having to write things completely out of order as he was trying to come to grips with the story. And we're going to have him on the podcast as I chat to him about that process. But I was thinking then, again, how Scrivener allows for you to do that so beautifully. Just as an example for our listeners to understand the practical side of the theory that we're discussing. So how I do mine is I have each folder be a chapter. So it'll be chapter one, chapter two, so it goes. I change the icon of each chapter according to which character is the POV character in that chapter, because most of my books are multiple POV books. So just by looking at it, I know, oh, this is Jezebel or this is Ursula based on the icon of the folder. And then in the folder, each scene has its own subfolder so that you can see how many scenes make up one particular chapter. I split up mine like that. But what's really amazing is that you can create these kind of keywords that allows you to search the document for certain things. And you can allocate these keywords to characters. So if one particular character is in one chapter, you drop that keyword in there so that later, let's say you decide to change something about that character. Now, if you did that in Word, you would have to go through your entire document, perhaps search for the character's name and do it that way. But in Scrivener, you just search for that keyword. It then brings up the files that that keyword has been allocated to, and you can make the changes like that, which also you can do that for themes. Let's say you are exploring multiple themes in your novel. Let's say it's the pain of grief and then perhaps the betrayal of a loved one. You can also put each of those themes in a keyword and allocate them to certain scenes so that again, you can do a search like that. And each of the keys has got a color coding. So if you like me and you like to see all these color coded things and that's how you learn and that's how you remember things, Scrivener allows you to do that. If you can't be asked with it, then you don't have to do that. Right, Julia? Yeah, absolutely. It's some people are writing a novel from two different people's points of view or three or four people's points of view, and they just want to kind of tag different sections and go, okay, at some point I'm going to go through and I'm going to look at everything from John's point of view, just to make sure actually that John really did have blue eyes seven chapters back, or his wife was called Catherine because I've written so much since then from everybody else's point of view that I cannot remember for the life of me. So yeah, again, they're just, you know, these little additions that we've added in over time. It's just because that's kind of how people work. You want to know what a particular character is doing, or if everything in a particular scene at a certain time of year kind of all ties up, really. So you can have Venice tagged together. And it just aimed at making it a bit easier for you. So then you can just concentrate on what you're writing and not worrying about whether your character's continuity is working out for you really well. Yeah. And there's also sections that specifically hold your research. So you can put pictures in there. You can put maps in there. If you're like me and while you're researching, you're trying to find an answer to something and then you find the answer and you quickly go back to your document and carry on working. At the end of my writing session, I have like 50 tabs open on Google and I used to just close them. And now before I close them, I copy and paste each of those addresses into my research section so that later, if I need to find that same article, I just go back to the research section about that particular setting or about Venice or whatever the case may be is, and it's all there. Plus there's character sheets. So for those of you who like to keep those character sheets, it's there. And Julia, there's also now so much more functionality that allows Scrivener to cross-reference to other software. I'm seeing now that, like, for example, Lisa Kron's Story Genius in terms of scene cards, and I don't know if this is something you guys have done or if this is something that other writers have done, but if you search, you'll find like a scene card for Lisa Kron's Story Genius that you can use within Scrivener. Yeah, I think that's something that someone else has done. I mean, actually, we've got a fantastic community of users. Take, for instance, templates. We've built in some templates into Scrivener itself. But my goodness, people have kind of run with it. They've taken it and run with it. There are templates for everything now. All the different story methods, things like Save a Cat Writes a Novel. 
yeah, this is another one actually. But this isn't one that we've produced. This is yeah, this is some that um, that Lisa Crons has you know someone that's taken it and, and done Lisa Crons method. It's it's really good. It's really exciting. It's just lovely to see how people are using Scrivener and all the different ways that they've kind of molded it to fit what they actually want to do with their writing. Another piece of software that I love using is Eon to Timeline, which really helps you map out a timeline of a story. So that let's say you decide to change your character's age at some later juncture. And you don't think about it, but changing the character's age means that something that happened in the past actually happens to them at a younger age and it has a knock-on effect. And I was very excited to see that there was a functionality that could link my Aeon 2 timeline software to Scrivener as well, so that I wasn't even having to use multiple softwares. So now, Julia, here's the thing. So whenever I speak about Scrivener to other writers, they get this rictus of fear on their faces because they are terrified of learning how to use it. And I can understand why, because this is such amazing software and the capabilities are so amazing that, of course, it's not going to be something that you are just going to pick up in two seconds. But when I started teaching myself how to use it, and this was many years ago, there's now so many more resources available. You've got an amazing instruction manual that you do not have to sit down and study for five days before you can learn how to use the software. So how I taught myself was on an as and when basis. When I needed to know something, I went back into the instruction manual and that's how I taught myself how to do it. What's your suggestions for that and what resources are available? Well, that's it. The basics are really, really simple. Probably the best way, all the versions have got an interactive tutorial built into them. The most important bit of that really is the getting started area. So if you read through that and kind of have a think, then you can go away and start playing around. If you're not a read the manuals type of person, if you want to go through and work your way through the interactive tutorial, it's probably about 10 minutes. So grab yourself a cup of tea or whatever you want, sit down, grab a biscuit and just go, right, okay, we're going to do this. Or just go away and play around if you want. Actually, we've been kind of thinking about it. We put some videos out. There are various parts getting started, a few of the features and this, that and the other. But we had people come up to us and go, look, I'm a real visual learner. So what can you do? So actually last year, at the end of last year, we launched a series of webinars, which we're going to be doing regularly. And for some people, there's no substitute for a person sitting there going, right, okay, here's the pointer. I'll show you how to do this. Click, click, click. Ah, great. I've got it now. That's all good. So yeah, we've started the webinar series. We've also, there's a book called Take Control of Scrivener, which we sell through our site, which was produced by Kirk, who runs our own podcast and writes loads for our blog. And he's an absolute fountain of knowledge. So that's another really good resource for it as well. The thing is, like Scrivener itself, where you can kind of mold it to what you want to do, we're trying to actually just offer a whole load of approaches. So you can get the basics. And then like you say, just go and pick and choose the features you want and just please happily ignore the rest. You don't have to have a sort of MA in Scrivener to be able to start on it. It should be a five minute process, really. Yeah, if you're not big on all of those extra functionalities to start with, you just open your folder and you start writing. And it's already better formatted in terms of where to find it or better organized than Word is because Word is just one continuous document and you start at the top and you go all the way to the bottom. So even if you just use Scrivener just to order your work in a way that's more accessible so that you can jump between chapters so much more quickly, then that's even worth it. But again, as you need each thing, I remember getting to the point where I'd written everything and I was like, okay, now I want to put in my keywords. And then I went and I did some research on it and I looked at the instruction manual. But besides the content you guys are putting out, Julia, you've got tons of fans who, if you Google how to do something, somebody generally has a video of it on YouTube. I know, it's like the templates. People are kind of, oh, I found this great feature, so I'm just going to do a little vlog on it or something. And here you go. Here's a step-by-step guide. And it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think really when you get started with Scrivener, the most important things are just the ability to bring all your research into one place, which is great because then you're not searching around your desktop going, oh, I had a video somewhere. I had some various Word documents and I think I had a PDF. And then I made a recording of someone that I heard in a cafe and I thought I'd really use that. But where did I put that? And you can bring it all into Scrivener and then you can look at that whilst you're writing. And then whilst you're writing, you can split your documents into different sections. And again, that's one advantage over just your normal word processor. You can have different scenes and, you know, for later on, that's great for your editing. Or you can just write a giant document from end to end. I don't do that. There must be somebody out there who's a linear writer and goes from start to finish and doesn't take any breaks in between. But even when you've done that, 
you're going to want to go back and edit. So you can go back then, break it into sections, find your structure, and then work your magic on it as time goes on. But it's having that option. That's the good thing, I think. Yeah. And the first time I used it was on my first novel that I'd finished and I was busy editing. And I was getting very annoyed with changing one thing here and then not being able to find the next place where I referred to that. And so I took my finished work in progress and split that up and put it into Scrivener for editing as well. So don't think that because you as a writer already have this work in progress in Word that it means you can't then move to Scrivener because you can. And a great thing about it is one of the views that you can look at that Julia referred to earlier is like a corkboard view. So for those of you who like to use cue cards in which you do the synopsis of what's in that chapter, for those of you who like to work through Lisa Cron's third rail for every single scene, you can write that on the cue card that accompanies that scene. And then you can view that instead of the actual document so that you get this visual representation of everything that you've planned over there, which is really, really helpful as well. It's multiple ways that you can access this information. So Julia, could you tell us, we've negotiated with you for our delegates who are attending the Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat at the end of January. There is a discount that you are offering our delegates. Is that right? Yeah, we're offering the delegates a 20% discount on the software. That's on the Mac and the Windows versions, the desktop versions. So yeah, there's also a 30-day free trial and that's 30 days of actual use rather than 30 calendar days. So if you're like me, one day, two days, you'll write solidly, then you'll take a break of about a week and then you'll go back to it and tackle it again. But it's kind of built for that. Clock doesn't start the minute you download it. You can just use it as and when, get a really good feel for it. And then if you want to go and buy it, great. And use the discount, even better. Absolutely. And you can use it across multiple devices, can't you, Julia? Like if somebody has an iPad and a laptop, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who talks about how his devices are synced. Is that right? Or am I That's getting right. confused? Yes. No, we've got an iOS version as well, which works for iPads and iPhones. So it's really good to be able to just do a bit of editing on the train or something like that and then sync it back to your actual main Scrivener version in on the desktop. Or if you've got an iPad, actually, a lot of people now just write their entire novel on the iPad. Yeah, I was very impressed when he showed me that feature, which I didn't know about at all. So Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, for those of you who are going to be at the conference, we will be having a half an hour presentation on Scrivener during the actual retreat. And again, from personal experience, and I'm not being paid to say this, so you know, this is just me loving the software, which is exactly why I reached out to Scrivener and to Julia, is purely because I'm a huge fan of the software. Whenever I teach an extended class, I will share my Zoom screen with my students and I show them how my documents are set up and I give them a bit of a tutorial because I love it so much and I encourage them to use it as well. So thanks so much, Julia. Thanks, Bianca, and great to hear that you're a user as well. That's lovely. Thanks for having us on. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, 
formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.